If you have your Bible, open to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, our passage is verse 1 to 6. We've been working through the New Testament this year. I planned this sermon series uh, mid-2021, and most of the weeks uh, I picked a particular passage that I wanted uh, to look at on any given week when we've read five chapters and we're going to talk about something from that window. There were a few weeks I left open uh, so that I could think about it or change my mind along the way, but most of them I picked, and this morning's passage is certainly one that I picked as I looked at the preaching schedule and I looked at the calendar and I thought about the fact that we would be in the book of Revelation and that we would be in the month of December, uh, Revelation 12, verse 1 to 6 was the passage that leapt off the page and uh, it's the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. As I read commentaries this week and did my preparation and my study, many commentators make the point or make the argument that Revelation chapter 12 is the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. I'm not sure I agree with that, but a lot of commentators made that argument. I also looked back this last week at my notes from a couple of different seminary classes, one on systematic theology, one on New Testament, one on eschatology, and multiple professors that I had at Southern Seminary made the claim that Revelation chapter 12 is the most important chapter in the whole Bible. I'm not sure I agree with that either, but that's where we land this morning if you listen to the experts. Somewhere between the most important chapter in Revelation and the most important chapter in the whole Bible, so I feel absolutely no pressure to get this exactly right in Revelation chapter 12. I want to start by sharing two things with you. One is new, one will be a reminder if you've been here the last couple of weeks, but I want to talk to you about a couple of things that will help us this morning make sense of Revelation 12, and that will help you, I think, in your own personal study of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. So I want to start with a bit of a road map. I just want to give you an outline of the book of Revelation. This outline is not mine. It comes from a man named Peter Gentry, Dr. Peter Gentry. He is a recently retired Hebrew professor from Southern Seminary. He's now uh, semi-retired, I guess you would say. He moved to Phoenix and he's teaching Hebrew at Phoenix Seminary. He is a world-renowned Hebrew scholar. He looks in a short book he has written, he looks at the Old Testament prophets and he, he writes this book about how we ought to understand the Old Testament Hebrew prophets. And at the end of that book, he has a little section that is so helpful. He basically says at the end, oh, by the way, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, writes just like a Hebrew prophet. So all of the things you learn about how to read and study the Old Testament Hebrew prophets will help you when you turn to the book of Revelation. And he gives this outline. Numbers are very important in the book of Revelation, and he breaks the book down according to seven sevens. Seven sevens. There's a prologue where we meet Jesus. There's an epilogue at the end, and then these are the sevens. Seven letters to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions of conflict in Revelation 12, 13, and 14. That's where we're at this morning, and that's where we're going to be next week. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 13 
next Sunday. So we've got seven visions of conflict. Then there's seven plagues. Sometimes they're called the bowl judgments. Then there are seven visions of victory. And then at the end, seven visions of the end. Now, those of you who are astute and you're paying attention to my references have noticed that I've left two chapters out of this outline. Gentry has left two chapters out of this outline. The missing chapters are Revelation 4 and 5, which really stand alone, I would argue, as the most important chapters in the book of Revelation, the centering foundational vision to the entire book. But I really, really like Gentry's approach in looking at these seven sevens that make up the book of Revelation. Now, With that outline in front of you, I want to put all my cards on the table when it comes to the book of Revelation. I realize that not everyone, believe it or not, agrees when it comes to the book of Revelation. But I just want to tell you how I approach the book as a whole. I like this broad outline. Some people have different approaches to how to outline it, but I like what Gentry's given us here. When I look at the book of Revelation, I do not read it as a timeline that begins at some point and moves in one straight line, event after event after event after event to the end, so that you and I are left with a timeline to figure out what is this, what is this, what's next, what's after that. I don't think that's how the Hebrew prophets write in the Old Testament, and I don't think it's how John has written the book of Revelation. I also do not read the book of Revelation like many people do, reading it as a list of prophecies that have all been fulfilled in the first century A.D. That's the preterist view that says all of the book has been prophesied and it's all already been fulfilled within the first century A.D. That is not how I read the book at all. I also don't read the book of Revelation, like many, many people do, especially in our neck of the woods, as if the book of Revelation is only exclusively about a small period of history at the very, very end of life on this earth before Jesus comes back. I think the book actually had important things to say to the original audience who received it. And I think it has something to say for the last 2,000 years of church history leading all the way up to the return of Jesus. When I read the book of Revelation and I see these seven sevens, I think the best way to understand the structure of this book, just like the Hebrew prophets wrote, is that this is apocalyptic literature. I told you last week, the very first word in the book of Revelation is the word apocalypsis. It's the Greek word that means unveiling or revealing. Unveiling or revealing. Apocalyptic literature tells you what is real. What's real. It's not just about the end times. It's also about the now times. What is real? What was real in the past? What is real in the present? And what will be real in the future? And what apocalyptic literature does is it pulls back the curtain so that you can see clearly through the window And understand what is real in the heavenly realms and what is real here on earth. 
So let me try to explain this to you with a sports metaphor. You folks have come to the late service. It's 11.25. I'm just getting amped up, which means you are going to miss the first part of the football game today at noon. The Dallas Cowboys are going to destroy the Houston Texans. And I would like to take this moment to apologize. A few weeks ago, my friend Shane Wagner, who's sitting right over here, preached on a Wednesday night, and he said blasphemous things about the Dallas Cowboys and inappropriate things about the Houston Texans, and he will never preach again at Emmanuel. That's it. It's over. It's done. The Dallas Cowboys, they're going to play a football game today. I looked this up this last week. The game's on Fox. Fox will use about 20 cameras to show you the game. Not just one camera, 20 cameras. You know this if you've ever watched a sporting event on TV, right? There are cameras that move up and down the sidelines at an NFL game. They're on tracks and they just sort of glide. If you've ever been to a game, you can see them move up and down depending on where the ball is at on the field. There's cameras in the little orange pylons right there on the goal line because we need to be able to see, did the ball cross the goal line when Dak Prescott runs it in? Yes, it crossed the goal line. That's a touchdown for the Cowboys. So you can see down that way. There will be a camera angle way up at the top of AT&T Stadium to show all of the fans cheering and clapping as the Cowboys score a touchdown. There will probably even be a camera on a blimp floating around outside the stadium so you can see what's really happening outside the stadium, in the stadium. All these camera angles. One game. When you watch on TV and the camera angle shifts, you don't panic and say, Oh, they're showing a new game now. You understand, it's the same game, shown from many different angles. What I'm saying to you is that's what the book of Revelation is like with these seven sevens. Seven camera angles on what God's people can expect life to be like in the period of history that began with the ascension of Jesus to heaven and that will end when Jesus returns in glory. That's the period of time the Bible calls the last days. And what the book of Revelation is showing you is not just the last seven years of history, but it's showing you what life is like in the last days between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and the return of Jesus from heaven. What is real? Now some of these camera angles have different emphases. The seven letters to the seven churches, they have a different emphasis than what you find in the seven visions of victory towards the end of the book. Granted, the camera angles are different, but they're all reporting the same period of history. Now, our passage is located in Revelation 12, which goes with 13 and 14. Here's the big idea of our paragraph, verse 1 to verse 6. Jesus is the central character in the story of history. Jesus is the central character in the story of history. If your view of the book of Revelation focuses on Antichrist and beast from the sea and beast from the land and this writer and who is this angel and what is that, you've completely missed the point of the book of Revelation. You have completely missed the point. The whole book is about Jesus from beginning to end. It starts with the vision of Jesus. It ends with Jesus being with his people. It's all about Jesus. And that's true for these verses that we're about to look at. Now, we're going to talk about a dragon. We're going to talk about a beast from the sea. We're going to talk about a beast from the land. And we're going to talk about them more next week. 
But the central character, the hero of the story, the main one that all of this is about is Jesus. So, take your copy of the Scriptures, follow along as I read Revelation 12, verse 1 to 6. The Bible says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to this book uh, in the Bible, this last book in the Bible, and there are things that are odd to us, unusual, things that we're not used to thinking about, ways of thinking that we're not accustomed to. And so we ask for your help this morning. Uh, Lord, we want to understand what your word is saying to us. And beyond intellectual understanding, we want to be people who can stand in the presence of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So we pray that you would make that true of us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just like we did last week, I just want to jump in. I want to talk to you about some of the symbolism and some of the imagery in our passage, Revelation 12, 1 to 6, and then I want us to step back and think about how we ought to live and how we ought to respond. So what are the symbols in Revelation 12, 1 to 6? I told you that Jesus is the central character in the story of history, and so we're going to start with the male child. You meet this child in verse 5. Verse 5 says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And this child was caught up to God into his throne. This child is Jesus. And there is a major interpretive clue that gives it away. Who is this male child that was born? He was born, the text says, to rule with a rod of iron. If you've read the Old Testament, you've come across Psalm chapter 2, especially verse 7, 8, and 9, which you can look up later. It talks about one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The parallels between Psalm 2 and the book of Revelation are amazing. When you look at Psalm 2, you read about two characters in Psalm 2. The first character is the Lord, all caps, Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And you read that Yahweh is sitting in the heavens. Yahweh, who sits in the heavens. As you keep reading through Psalm 2, you read about Yahweh's anointed, the Lord's anointed. Literally, 
What you read about in Psalm 2 is Yahweh's Messiah. The anointed one is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Those are the two characters in Psalm 2. Yahweh, who is sitting in the heavens, and His Messiah. Then you come to the book of Revelation, and over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, we read about one who is seated on the throne. One who is seated on the throne. And almost every time you read about the one who is sitting on the throne, the book of Revelation says, and the Lamb. The one who is seated on the throne. Psalm 2. Who's the one sitting in the heavens? Well, it's the Lord, Yahweh. It's the God of Israel. And in Psalm 2, he's with the anointed one, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. In the book of Revelation, he's described as the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to purchase people, to ransom people with his blood from every tribe, nation, language, and people. It's a literary parallel to help you understand these two pieces of writing are talking about the same two people, Psalm 2 and the book of Revelation. And in both places, it's the Lord's anointed and it's the Lamb, it's this child who is ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. He's the center of all the action. Now in Revelation 12, 1 to 6, I just want to acknowledge this, the life of Jesus is condensed we don't read about everything he did or said. We read about his birth, that's Christmas, the very first Christmas, and we read about his ascension, not the resurrection, but several days later, several weeks later, his ascension, his birth and his ascension. He was born, the child was born, and then he was caught up to heaven to be with the one who sits on the throne in heaven. It's the Lord and His anointed. It's the Lord Yahweh and His Messiah. It's the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. This child, the one who is born to rule the nations with a rod of iron, is Jesus. Here's the second symbol you need to see. It's a pregnant woman. A pregnant woman. You meet her in verse 1 and 2, but notice what we read in verse 5 and 6. It says, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. The child was caught up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness. We'll come to those images in a minute. When we met her in the previous verses, there was a great sign, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Twice I've gone to Ecuador on a mission trip. Our church in Oklahoma had a partnership in Ecuador. We would often travel in and out of Quito. And in Quito, there was a restaurant, a steakhouse called Pim's. And that was always the last thing we did on our mission trip, is we would go eat at Pim's Steakhouse. Pim's Steakhouse is located just a few yards from this statue. This is the tallest aluminum statue in the world, 135 feet tall. The statue is called the Virgin of El Panaceo. And I remember the first time we went to Ecuador asking one of the guys who was with us as we approached the statue. You can see it, obviously, from a long ways off. What is that statue? And his immediate dismissive answer was, I'm just going to tell you what he said, Oh, that's Mary. You know the Catholics. They love Mary more than Jesus. So they built a statue to Mary. And I thought, well, okay. We got there, and I start looking at the statue, and I start trying to think, what, what is going on in this statue? 
and you start to look at it, and my mind immediately doesn't go to Mary as you read about her in the Gospels, but it goes to this chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, because this woman in this statue is crowned with 12 stars over her head. And right there on the front of her shirt or her robe or her gown or whatever it is, is the sun, an image of the sun. She's clothed with the sun. And down underneath her feet, there is a dragon. We'll come to a dragon in just a little while, but there's also a crescent moon. And we read about the moon and the stars and some of this imagery in this passage. Listen, the traditional Catholic answer to this question, who is the woman? The traditional Catholic answer is it's Mary. And you understand how that might make sense. If Jesus is the male child who was born, well, then the pregnant woman who gives birth to him, that probably ought to be Mary. I would agree with that interpretation, kind of. I think a better way of thinking about this pregnant woman in Revelation 12 is to think about this woman as the people of God. And Mary would certainly be part of the people of God. But I don't think we ought to limit it to just Mary. I think we ought to think about the people of God as a group. Look at verse 1. There's a sign. And the sign involves the sun and the moon and the stars. Virtually every commentator on the book of Revelation will point you back to the book of Genesis to a vision, a dream of a young man named Joseph who dreamed and had a vision about the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. When Joseph had that vision or that dream, what he was dreaming is that the people of God were bowing down in front of him. You understand, at that point in time, the people of God were not very many. It was Abraham's family, then Isaac's family, then Jacob had the sons. And in this vision, it's the sun, the moon, the stars. It's his mom and his dad and his siblings. It's his extended family all bowing down to him. The people of God bowing down to him. Commentators say this is a direct callback to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And this woman who gives birth to this child is not just Mary, his human mother, but it's ultimately all of the people of God. This nation, this covenant people that God established in order to bring the Messiah into the world. The detail, the clue to understanding this is that not just that this is a pregnant woman, but that she is clothed, as it were, with the sun, with the stars, and with the moon. So we see this as the people of God. And then we see a dragon. Not just any dragon, but a great red dragon. This is the kind of stuff people love in the book of Revelation. Dragons. There's very little debate that the dragon is Satan. That's pulled from the very next page or the very next line or the very next paragraph. Revelation 12, verse 9. There is a great dragon thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You'll notice in our passage, verse 3 and verse 4, this great red dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. These images in the book of Revelation and apocalyptic writing are telling you that this dragon has power. He has great power. And he has tremendous influence over the world, power, 
and influence. If you've been reading the book of Revelation up to this point, you've already met him. It goes by a number of different names or titles in the book of Revelation. Again, he's not the central character, but he is a character. In Revelation chapter 6, he's the one who is riding with death in Hades. In chapter 9, he's this king called Abaddon or Apollyon. You read about him in chapter 11, verse 7, is a beast from the abyss. If you keep reading past our passage in chapter 17, he's the beast who was and is not. 20, he's the ancient serpent who was bound and he's the deceiver of the nations. So we have the child. We have a pregnant woman. We have a great red dragon. We also have stars. The stars of heaven mentioned in verse 4. Verse 4 says, his tail, speaking of the dragon, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. When I'm confident in the book of Revelation, I will tell you that I'm confident. When I'm unsure, I will tell you that I'm unsure. And I'll just be honest with you, this is a point where I'm a little bit unsure. Most commentators seem to think the reference is Daniel 8, and I tend to agree that Daniel 8 is in view. But if you go back and look at Daniel 8 in the parallel, what seems to be described in Daniel 8 is the death of God's people, human beings who are being persecuted for their loyalty to God. So if Daniel 8's the parallel, you would look at this reference to the stars being swept out. That's what it refers to in Daniel 8, humans who are killed for being loyal to the Lord. And you might say, well, it's talking about Christians who are killed by the dragon for their faithfulness to Jesus. But there are many commentators, and I tend to agree with them, who keep looking forward in Revelation chapter 12 and say, no, it seems like these angels who are swept down by the tail of the dragon uh, are angels. Just that. These stars are angels. As I read through this and I sorted through this, here's my favorite commentary answer. G.K. Beale, one of the top authorities on the book of Revelation. You know what he says? Both. He's a coward and he won't pick a side. And he says it refers to both. This stars, third of the stars being swept down, it refers to Christians who are persecuted and killed for their faith, and it refers to the angels who fell with Satan. I don't know that I can buy both, but I could buy either one of those views. Two more symbols, the wilderness and the 1,260 days. Very briefly, I think the wilderness is a reference to the world. And I think the 1,260 days is a reference to the church age. I don't want to explain this too much on how I get to this point for this reason. By the time you get to Revelation 12, you've made hundreds of interpretive decisions that are going to shape the way that you make sense of these images. So a lot is already baked in the cake at this point. I'm just laying my cards on the table to tell you how I make sense of these two images. This woman in this vision who represents the people of God, is sent out into the wilderness. Just like the people of God today have been sent out into the world. We are not of the world, but we live in the world. And the Bible says that we live in the world as strangers, sojourners, and exiles. This world is not our home, but it's where we find ourselves today. God provides for this woman in the wilderness. We read about that in Revelation 12 Verse 6, God has always provided for His people in the world. He prepared a table for David in the presence of his enemies. He provides for His people today. He knows what they need. He knows the hairs on their head. He loves them more than He loves the, the flowers and the birds. God provides for His people. 
Then there's 1,260 days. If you're doing the math, that's three and a half years or it's 42 months. And it's a number that shows up multiple times in the book of Revelation. And when you add all those up together, it's the kind of thing in the book of Revelation with a number like that you say, I need to take this number seriously, but I'm probably not supposed to take it literally. That's what we do with a lot of the imagery and a lot of the the numbers in the book of Revelation. We have to take them seriously. We can't be dismissive of them, but you don't always take apocalyptic imagery literally. And I think that we ought to do that with the 1,260. I would just point out to you, this unit, 12, 13, 14, seven visions of conflict, it begins in chapter 12 with the birth and then the ascension of Jesus, his ascension, And if you keep reading all the way to chapter 14, it ends with his return. Chapter 14 talks about the return of the Lord Jesus. You can see it right here in Revelation 14, 14. I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That's the Lord Jesus come to judge the living and the dead. You understand, that's what John's doing in the book of Revelation in a unit like this. He's giving you a vision... He's pulling back the curtain so you can see what's real in this period of time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. So, those are the symbols. Let's talk about us. What do we take away from this passage? And how should we live in light of this passage? What do we learn from Revelation 12? I want to give you four lessons. The first lesson is this. Satan is relentlessly hostile, relentlessly hostile to God, to God's purposes, to God's Son, and to God's people. Relentlessly hostile. In this particular vision, we meet this woman who's pregnant and she's about to have this child and the dragon is there to devour the child. The woman is ushered off into the wilderness. The child is caught up to heaven. If you keep reading in chapter 12, you'll find that the dragon turns his attention back to the woman. He is relentlessly hostile towards God, towards His purposes, towards His Son, and towards His people. This is nothing new in the Bible. This is something that began when Satan rebelled against God in the beginning. And I take the reference in chapter 12 to the stars being swept down as a reference to the angels who defected with him. Not a literal third. We don't take numbers literally, but we take them seriously. Satan rebelled and a group of the angels defected with him. There's hostility between Satan and God. It plays over in the Garden of Eden or it carries over to the Garden of Eden when Satan shows up. Only in Genesis 3, you don't know it's Satan, do you? You just know it's a serpent. And it's not until you get to Revelation 12, the verse we read earlier, where you learn that this ancient serpent is the devil, it's Satan. All the dots come together. And he tempts Adam and Eve to join his rebellion and to live in hostility towards their creator. They listen to the serpent. Hostility grows. God shows up and He says to the serpent and He says to the man and He says to the woman, there will be ongoing enmity, strife 
conflict between the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. There will be two groups of people moving down through history. The people of God and the people who align themselves with the prince of the power there, the spirit that's now at work amongst the sons of disobedience in this world. Ongoing enmity and conflict. You see it, do you not, in the book of Exodus? When Pharaoh says, I want to destroy these people. I want you to throw all of the baby boys into the Nile River. I want them gone. You see it as the people have come into the land and they've established a kingdom and the kingdom's been divided and then they go into exile. You see it during the exile, don't you? When Haman rises up and he wants to commit genocide against the Jewish people all because one guy named Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. It's such a strange story. Why did this bother him so much? Why does he want to kill these people? It's the same story that began in the beginning. This enmity, this hostility, this conflict that rages. It rages in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a part that we don't have recorded in the Bible. There's a a king named Antiochus Epiphanes who marches on Jerusalem and he sets out to destroy the Jewish people. You see it at Christmas. Don't you? The first Christmas when Herod the Great learns about a king who was born in Bethlehem and he wants that king dead and his response is kill all of the babies in this place and of this age. Do you not see it today in 1 Peter chapter 5? That ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour, seeking families to devour, seeking churches to devour, seeking nations to devour. This hostility you see in Revelation 12 is not just emblematic of the end, but it's emblematic of all of human history between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. So that brings us to you and me. If that's true, then the people of God, you and I, we ought to expect suffering and persecution until Christ returns. And a Merry Christmas to you. Suffering and persecution until Christ returns. And I believe that this includes political persecution as well as false teaching. We'll get into this more next week. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 13. We're going to talk about a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. I just want you to see sort of the direction that I'm moving and the direction that I'm thinking. First of all, I want you to understand that everything in the book of Revelation up to this point tells you as a Christian that on this side of the ascension and on this side of the resurrection, in the last days, you should expect suffering and persecution. The letters to the seven churches, they tell the churches, you're going to suffer. Be faithful in suffering. The seals that are broken, especially the first four seals, talk about the suffering that will be inflicted on this world. The trumpets that are blown, especially the first four trumpets, talk about the suffering that we will experience in this life. Suffering and persecution are the norm. Revelation 12, 13, 14, seven visions of conflict. This dragon that we met in the first six verses will eventually be involved with a beast from the sea. This is Revelation 13, 1 to 10. 
This beast from the sea represents political oppression, political persecution. And this is what I'm telling you. I believe that this beast from the sea will culminate in an end times figure. However, however, John and his readers lived under this beast. It's called Rome. And the leader was called Nero. People around the world today live under this beast. In secular, openly atheistic, hostile to Christianity, totalitarian regimes like China, North Korea, Iran. And, are you ready for this one? This might be a curveball. Those of us who live under the authority of Western democracies also live under this beast. Governments that sanction and legalize the murder of babies. Governments that seek to redefine and tinker with what it means to be male and female and what marriage is. And then enforce that and tell you to go along with it with the the teeth of legislation. That's the beast from the sea. Is it going to culminate in an end times figure? I think so. But I think if you focus on that end times figure, you will miss the fact that you're already there today. John and his readers were there. We're all there. Then there's a beast from the land. I think the beast from the land, this prophet that comes alongside the beast from the sea, represents false teaching in all of its forms and all of its manifestations. Again, I tend to think that this beast from the land will culminate in some sort of end times figure. However, you need to understand we're already there. In my Sunday school class this morning, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would prefer to be known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel. They lived under this beast. The enforcement of idolatry, they lived under it. All sorts of world religions would fall under this camp. All sorts of false teaching within the church would fall under this camp. I understand. We'll talk about this more next week. You get to the end of Revelation 13, verse 18, and there's this mark of the beast, 666, and people lose their mind. I mean, they just go crazy. It's a tattoo on your forehead. No. It's a shot in your arm. No. It's a microchip. You got one in your dog and you're next. No. This is what the mark is. It's the temptation to go along with these two beasts and the dragon to save your own neck. To save your reputation. To save your pocketbook. And yes, I think there will be some sort of culmination at the very end. I think so. But I know that it's been going on for 2,000 years of church history and it's going on now. The temptation to get along and go along. To not be the squeaky wheel. To just do whatever Rome says. Pinch a little incense to Caesar. Go along with whatever the Congress passes. That's the mark of the beast. Now, let's just step back and admit something. That's a little heavy for Christmas, isn't it? 
Like it's Christmas season, family photos, eggnog, Christmas cards, presents under the tree, sleigh rides, jingle bells. That's the kind of stuff we like at Christmas. And here you are in church on a Sunday morning talking about dragons and suffering and persecution and beasts. That's kind of heavy. It's fair for us to acknowledge that that's heavy stuff. There's things in the book of Revelation that we ought not look forward to, and there's things in the book of Revelation that we say we're living in it now, and I don't particularly like it. There's a heaviness to this. The heaviness does not give any of us the license to whine or complain or bellyache or feel sorry for ourselves. There was a man who lived about 500 years ago. He was a converted Catholic monk. His name was Martin Luther. He experienced all the stuff that we're talking about. The suffering, the persecution, the political oppression, the false teaching. He lived under all of it. Just like we live under all of it. And he faced the temptation to take the mark of the beast. And guess what? It wasn't a line where they were tattooing your forehead. It wasn't a shot they were putting in your arm. It wasn't a microchip underneath your skin. Here was the temptation for Luther. Luther, we will let you go home and be comfortable and be safe and be with your family. All you have to do is recant. Burn your books. Repent of your false teaching. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, Scripture alone. Turn from all that back to our game, our system, and everything will be great. That wasn't an easy thing for Luther to process. I wouldn't pretend like it was. He agonized over it. He had to pray about it. But by God's grace, he stayed faithful to the gospel. He stayed faithful to the truth. And he stood against all of the things that we're talking about. He remained faithful as a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this suffering and persecution. And guess what? He did it joyfully. Not feeling sorry for himself. Not whining. Not complaining. Not belly aching. Joyfully. He wrote a hymn. We still sing the hymn 500 years later. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I just want you to see the third and the fourth verse. Verse 3. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One Little word shall fail him. Here's verse 4. That word, and you notice word here is in all caps. Satan will be felled, defeated with one word, with the breath of the Lord Jesus upon his return. That's all it will take. Not a battle, breath. He'll be defeated. That word, the Lord Jesus, is above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. What he's saying is, Jesus is not ruling over all the earthly powers because they acknowledge him as king. His sovereignty is of no thanks or credit to the earthly powers. He's king whether they acknowledge him or not. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. 
Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He stood and he stood with joy. He knew that Satan was real and that he was opposed to God and his purposes and his son and his people. He knew that he should expect suffering and persecution in this life. And he knew this, number three on your notes, that Satan and evil were decisively defeated at the cross. Decisively defeated at the cross. I've got Revelation 13, 11 here. It's really Revelation 12, 11. That's my typo. Revelation 12, 11, there's this conflict raging. Remember, we're in a, a section of visions of conflict. The conflict is raging in the heavenly places. Where does the victory come? Does it come from Michael, the archangel? No. Verse 11, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That's what made the difference in the battle. It's the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world that He might ransom people for God from every people, nation, tribe, and language on the earth. Acts 20. Jesus who purchased the church with His blood. Colossians. Jesus who disarmed the principalities and powers in the heavenly places through the blood He shed on the cross. The decisive victory against sin and evil has been won, and it was won at the cross. Luther knew that. Luther also knew that the final, ultimate victory would be the return of Jesus. Satan and evil will be ultimately defeated at the return of Jesus. Again, this is Revelation 14, 14. The one coming on a white cloud, seated like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, Head and a sharp sickle in his hand. He's the central character in this story. Not the beast from the land, not the beast from the sea, not the dragon, not the stars. Who are the stars? You see how you can get lost in the book of Revelation? Who is the central character? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's giving us this glimpse in 12, 13, 14. What can we expect in between Jesus' ascension and his return? Well, you can expect Satan to continue to be relentlessly hostile to God, to his purposes, to his son, and to his people. You, as part of the people of God, can expect persecution and suffering from governments and in the form of false teaching and at times combined in demonic ways. You can also know that the decisive victory over sin and evil has been won at the cross and the ultimate victory will be won when Jesus returns. As the people of God, we wait. We wait. We pray that God would help us to be faithful, but we wait for Christ's return.